0: So no one knows what you just said
1: But when you're all alone You and your head What's the computer say? It's molding now it's It says a joke It's filled it out and you Welcome to episode 1233 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan.
0: What I learned from this is that pre-recording, as we were getting ready, you rubbed your hands together like, oh boy, oh boy, we get to record a podcast.
1: It's not often we get to do a baseball (laughs) podcast. It still gets me excited every time. So, a few things to discuss. We're going to do emails today, but before we do... Our buddy Stephen Brault made his Major League National Anthem debut. What did you think of his rendition?
0: It was good. Now, I uh, I attended a Portland Pickles game on Tuesday night, uh-huh. a team that plays in the Rob Nyer-commissioned West Coast League, yes. and the National Anthem was sung by someone who was very bad at it. So relative <laughs> to that, especially Stephen Brault, I thought killed it. Mm-hmm. I I would think that it would be difficult to do that in front of your teammates because you right. kind of want to. You're used to like joking around with them, right? And, and it's hard to take someone seriously when they are singing like with uh, with sincerity. But <laughs> he did a, he did a really good job. Have, yeah.
1: Happy one It was pretty earnest But yeah, it was good It was uh, it was just kind of a no-frills rendition I mean, he didn't take too much time out there He wasn't one of the singers Who just kind of extends every line Kind of got in and got out And he was in key And uh, I think it went well So if the Pirates are looking to save money On future National Anthem singers Which they probably are Because it's the Pirates I'm sure Brault would be willing And would be a good choice So good for him Or
0: the last How many times do you think Bronson Arroyo sang the national anthem? Because I'm certain he did it at least once.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Did Barry Zito ever do it? These pitchers who have sidelines as singers and uh, eventually record albums. Yeah, what I don't about know.
0: Ben Broussard? He had a thing going like 10 years yeah. ago. I wonder yeah. how they can announce their retirement. Like, I'm done being a good baseball player. <laughs> I'm just, I'm retired and here's the end. He's, yeah.
1: <laughs> Yes. So one pitcher who will probably not be singing the national anthem anytime soon is Cubs closer Brandon Morrow, who is on the disabled list right now and probably will not be up to anything so strenuous as singing for a crowd based on how he heard himself here. This is, in the annals of baseball injuries, there are a lot of weird and funny and silly baseball injuries that we all remember and like to recount, but this has to be one of the most relatable injuries a baseball player has ever suffered. I mean, I know there are guys who've gotten hurt sneezing, but this is, I think, even more relatable than that. So, Mauro explaining how he hurt himself and went on the deal with back spasms, he says, "...just undressing at my house." taking my pants off yesterday morning after we got back in at like 3 a.m., just in the closet, got my right leg off, left one, just felt like a spasm in my back. It's frustrating any time you can't get out there, especially when you can't go because of something stupid like taking your <laughs> pants off. <laughs> I
0: uh, Have you ever sustained any sort of back injury, minor, major, in between?
1: Not really, no. I, nothing to complain about or that lingered in any serious way.
0: It can be coming. You're still so young and boyish. A few years <laughs> yes. ago, would there. have been like four four years ago maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I remember like getting a back spasm when I was playing high school baseball and even at that age, it was like, whoa, this is kind of debilitating for like a day. Mm-hmm. So like four or five years ago, ordinary day, blogging, you know, doing uh, doing work, pre-podcast yeah. so I had more time to blog. <laughs> and I uh, I had a snack. Right one in the afternoon, I had a banana. I haven't decided if I like bananas, but that day I wanted to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. So I uh, had a banana. And then I uh, I threw the peel away like you do. And I had a trash can that is not short. Didn't really have to bend over to uh, to throw the peel away, but I had to do like a little bit of a crink in my back is crink the uh-huh. word? Yeah, crink. Uh-huh. I bent my back a little bit, just the slightest bit, to bend down, step on the thing, open the lid, throw away the banana peel. And it was the worst back pain I have ever felt in my life. Actually the worst regular pain I have ever felt in my life. I uh, I collapsed to the ground front of, I hopefully no neighbors were watching through my window. And I made my way to the bed where I, it took me about 20 minutes to walk to my bedroom and get myself onto the bed, just lying prone, like thinking like, I'm just going to like rest this one out. And (laughs) then after about a half hour of being on the bed, had to go to the bathroom. I thought, oh no. (laughs) So it took uh, about 20 more minutes to get out of the bed, stand in position in the bathroom like you do. And Mm -hmm. uh, what I remember is then waking up, in the bathtub, having fainted and fallen into no. it because my back hurt too much.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, wow. but
0: uh, I don't know if that would have required a 10-day disabled list stint. because a back yeah. spasm still, kind of a, a short-term thing. But the I only bring this up to say that it is funny that Brandon Morrow injured his back enough to be placed on the major league disabled list while undressing. But I feel you, Brandon. Been there. Yeah. I've done something worse, doing something mm-hmm. worse. It's just a stupid. There's no good way to hurt your back. No one gets sympathy yeah. when they hurt their back.
1: Brandon Morrow takes his pants off one leg at a time, just like the rest <laughs> of us. So <laughs> when he does. He gets back spasms. <laughs> Were you on the blogging disabled list? Did you take a break from blogging?
0: No, I was back at it. I uh, played through wow. the pain. I uh, huh. went to the gym the next day. Also a mistake. Don't do that. But <laughs> yeah. kept on, kept on blogging. Don't remember what I wrote. It was probably not interesting.
1: I agree with you about bananas, by the way. I've consumed many a banana in my day, but I'm never really sure if I liked it or if right. I want to do it again. Okay. <laughs> let's kind talk of about this right for on a minute. that threshold where it's good enough that if I need energy, I will eat a banana, but I rarely seek a banana out or am very happy with the whole experience.
0: Yeah. I think they're thriving because we grew up in an age where, you know, you would watch cartoons or something in the morning on Saturday and you would see cereal commercials. And someone would always have like cut up banana in the cereal. Just every cereal, even if it was yeah. like Cookie Crisp, had bananas in it, which is a terrible <laughs> combination. And so I, I grew up at least with the association of bananas with breakfast and bananas with with health. And mm-hmm. so I and bananas are just placed prominently in every grocery store in America. And so they're just mm-hmm. always there in your face. But the texture is so weird, and <laughs> I I can't figure out that I don't. I don't know if I like them when they're ripe. I don't know if I like them when they're not very ripe. I don't know if I like anything about them at all. But I think like one out of every, I don't know, 10 is like (laughs) redeemable enough to make me think maybe I'm coming around.
1: Yeah. It comes in a convenient package by fruit standards, I would say. It's kind of fun to to snap off the end of a banana and unpeel it. There's some assembly or disassembly required, but it's kind of a satisfying feeling to unpeel it. But then again, every, I don't know, three times you unpeel one, you get a, a mushy... Bottom or top, because it's been slammed against something, and then it's all gooey and gross, and that kind of takes away from the fun of it.
0: Yeah, they're so fragile, but also yeah. You, so you're a you're a top snapper, huh? That's that's your method. Doesn't
1: everyone? Isn't that the way you do it? You break off where the the handle is. It's conveniently placed. Well, there's three
0: options. You can either break off. You can tear off the handle. You can gently gently make a cut with a knife if you have a knife convenient just huh. below the handle, or you can flip it around and squeeze together the bottom of it. And then uh, the you might maybe it would be easier to demonstrate with a banana, but I don't have one because I didn't buy them at the store. I'm yeah. like betting 250 with buying bananas at the store. But if you squeeze the bottom of it, then then the, you can unpeel it from uh, from there, and it's even easier. You have nothing, no separate part that you have to throw away.
1: Uh We recently got a banana hanger in our kitchen so Uh that (laughs) it looks good when you you have a whole bunch of bananas hanging there in the the thing that was specifically designed to hang (laughs) bananas from. It just feels like a very adult thing to do in your kitchen.
0: How many things do you think that you have in your kitchen that are specific to like one kind of produce? Because you can think of like the apple slicer also is very much only for apples. Yeah,
1: I have an egg slicer that comes in handy, but probably not many more. I know on our wedding registry, we really didn't put too many of those like food specific items on there because that's what everyone does in their wedding, right? It's like some extremely obscure kitchen implement that i never knew existed and that you use once a year or something. So I didn't want to cram up our, our kitchen with a whole bunch of those. So don't have a lot. I will say that Banana is probably among the more disgusting artificial flavors. So uh, if you're going to have a banana, have a real one because <laughs> the fake strong stuff. Strong agree. Yeah. All right. Well, we agree about bananas. We can move on. Kelvin Herrera got traded. You wrote about it. Is there anything we need to know about this Kelvin Herrera trade from the Royals to the Nationals? You you seem to suggest that it was perhaps a bit early.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's that's the takeaway. I think he's a, he's a good reliever. And, you know, whenever you trade for prospects, you... Don't actually know what they're going to become. And I don't know. I don't know how much more the Royals could have gotten. But I did get immediate feedback from some people who work for teams who were like, this is cheap. And also, why would they do this now? So mm-hmm. uh, Ken Rosenthal wrote an article about why would the Royals do this now? And it seems like he mostly talked to Dayton Moore and Royals people about it, which just provides you uh, with a pretty biased perspective. Not Ken's fault, but of course the Royals are going to defend what they did. Mm-hmm. But based on people who were observing this within the game the royals did not get enough to justify making the move now like if you're if you're going to trade for a player way in advance of the deadline or if you're a team who's going to trade a player way in advance of the deadline the royals obviously knew they were going to trade kelvin herrera at some point but if you're going to trade him now when there's not yet a fully active market you have to that price has to reflect the fact that you were skipping the uh, the auction process and mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think that's what happened here. Now, I don't know what kind of difference that makes. I don't know what kind of better prospect they might have been able to get. But weird return. I don't think they got a, a good player in the return.
1: Kevin is kind of a... Yeah, wasn't it some extremely obscure player that Kylie and Eric had trouble even finding a report on?
0: There were uh, there were three. And one was uh, Johanze Morrell.
1: Uh-huh.
0: But he's like a <laughs> 17-year-old kid who's barely played professionally. So, I mean, who uh-huh. knows what he's going to be? He's got his own life story sure he's a charming and talented individual but he's one of those 17 year olds in the dominican summer like nobody knows what he's going to be but they did get two higher Mm -hmm. level prospects but neither one of them is very good
1: yes one was also named kelvin so there was that Kelvin Hur is kind of a different pitcher from what he was in his royals heyday right like he throws a slider a lot now that he didn't throw then or barely threw then and yet he also doesn't really get as many strikeouts anymore or as many grounders, but he's still good. What exactly is going on with Kelvin Herrera?
0: Yeah, he he never really got the strikeouts you'd expect from someone who throws like 99 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's had the occasional season where he had more than a strikeout in an inning, but he, he's basically become a, a strike thrower. He's a power arm. Throws strikes with his breaking ball, throws strikes with his changeup. I think, I don't remember if this is accurate, but I'm just going to say it's accurate and defend myself by pointing to the post that I wrote. I think I looked up that Kelvin Herrera has baseball's highest strike rate on non-fastballs. That sounds right, mm. right? I don't know if you read the post. I wrote the post, and I don't remember it, but that sounds okay. <laughs> I, so I uh-huh. think he has the highest strike rate on non-fastballs, which speaks to his changeup and slider or curveball, whatever it is. So that's good. Sean Doolittle has a very high strike rate. Ryan Madsen has a very high strike rate. Brandon Kinsler, when he's right, throw strike. So the Nationals are trying to assemble a very strike-oriented bullpen. And uh, mm-hmm. if there's one team who is very accustomed to making midseason trades for prominent relievers, it is that one.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. All right. One other thing I wanted to mention. Do you recall, I'm sure you do, last year when we talked about Adam Lind and the gif of him hitting where there was a suspicious puff that was emitted from his backside as he got ready to swing at a pitch or or at least got ready to take now, a pitch? Can and Can I be <laughs> yeah. honest with you? Yeah, It is the only thing that I recall from 2017. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty memorable. So there was a whole debate about whether this was a fart or whether it was something else going on. Meg Rowley did a full write-up at Baseball Prospectus. She was all over it. So follow up on this topic. Late on Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning, I received a tweet and so did Meg and maybe you. I don't know, but we all received a tweet from listener Stuart Matthews, who covers the angels. And there was another suspicious puff emitted by an angel this time and even larger. If you remember what the Lind (laughs) clip looked like, it was you had to kind of squint to see it. This time it is a cloud. So I just sent you a gif that I made of this play. This was Martin Maldonado hitting on a one one count. And he gets hit by the pitch, he gets drilled, and at the same time, there is quite a cloud of something emitted from behind him. I will give you a second to watch this gif, because I assume you haven't yet. Whoa! Yeah. Wow! (laughs) It's it's not subtle. (laughs) What? But that's so much. I know. (laughs) There's a lot of whatever it is coming from behind him there, so... (laughs) I, uh, I had to consult some people who might actually know this time. It was fun to speculate wildly last time, but I had to get to the bottom of this. So. You know Nate Fryman, the former major league hitter who recently retired as a player and has now started dabbling in sabermetrics. He's an extremely smart and cerebral player who has now learned to code, and he even wrote a post for Fangraphs recently. We'll be talking to him on the podcast soon. Anyway, really smart player, so I asked him about farts. That is uh, the first <laughs> thing that I, I thought I should ask him about. So I sent Nate Fryman this GIF, and he responded to me. That's funny. Some guys go pretty heavy with the baby powder pregame. Sliders and cup can cause some pretty bad chafing. Basically, throw the sliders and the cup on, waltz into the training room, and start pouring front and back. Guys will have these bright white asses in the shower postgame. Does absolutely look like Lind and Maldonado are farting there, but not out of the question that Lind landed kind of heavy on the front foot and the front hip started open, which jarred the inevitably caked layers of baby powder loose. However, he says, also possible, getting hit by pitch causes a massive fart.
0: (laughs) The The Lind one looked like a more believable fart. This one is too much. No one has ever farted this prominently. And then this is something I guess we could have asked Dale Scott the other day, maybe when we have him back on, just be like, hey, you're back there all the time. You ever seen these puffs of white, puffs of white batter?
1: Yeah. Nate says that maybe Vroom Vroom Guy can use this strategically for (laughs) propulsion. (laughs) I wanted a second source Because that's just good journalism So I also asked Alex Hassan The former Major League hitter And actually former teammate of Nate Freiman's Who is a former Effectively Wild guest And now works for the Twins Like a lot of former Effectively Wild guests And he seems to say sort of the same thing He says the big puff is baby powder This is going to sound ridiculous But some guys, especially bigger guys With big thighs that rub together when they run So perhaps Martin Maldonado Fits that description will put lots of baby powder in their sliding shorts and jock to help prevent jock itch or just irritation down in that area. Sorry, this is getting gross. When we go out for early batting practice and we have shorts on, some guys you can see their baby powder showing through their shorts. Basically looks like a big white spot on the side of their shorts. <laughs> so I think that's what we have to conclude is happening here. Well, baby we kn- I mean,
0: I think we knew... There was likely baby powder. The question is, what is causing the baby powder to become a cloud? What is
1: projecting it into the air <laughs> yeah. through the pants?
0: Through the pants. Right. That's the thing, Through multiple layers right? of pants.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe it could be on the outside of your pants to a certain extent if you're just pouring without paying much attention and then it gets caked on there and then you get hit by a pitch and when Maldonado gets hit he, he kind of like backs up suddenly he's making a half-hearted attempt to get out of the way so I guess if it is caked on there as Freiman said it could just come out in a cloud I guess that's what's happening here.
0: Caked on there how much baby <laughs> powder are these now Adam Lind you might recall also Now, he's a little bit of a a bigger boy, first base DH. He's got some Mm pounds on him. But also, he wears extremely tight pants. Yes. Which would only stand to make it worse, right? (laughs) It just seems like it's counterintuitive to what he's... I know with like the sliders and the cup underneath, those are already tight to begin with. So maybe it doesn't really matter what the upper layer is doing. But, I mean, real tight. Just
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we're learning a lot about baseball players. I think this whole baby powder process was uh, not known to me until we started investigating this topic. All right. What else? Is there anything else? You did an interleague play update. We talked about that recently. You looked into the numbers. Basically, National League still winning in interleague play for the first time in more than a decade, and all the underlying metrics, the run differential, the OPS differential, they support the fact that the National League has actually been better in interleague play thus far. But as you note in the post, there is still a chance for a comeback victory by the AL to extend the streak here because basically there's just been a skewed distribution of the teams that have participated in interleague play thus far.
0: And since I started writing that, the A's now lead the Padres 10 to 1. So the American uh-huh. League is coming back. But yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the weighted average winning percentage so far of AL teams who have participated in interleague play is 477. That's not good. For the National League, it's 513. That's better. So worse AL teams have played interleague play than National League teams. So the AL has 184. Just about to be 183 interleague games to go. They will need to win 98 of those, assuming the A's win this game against the Padres. AL will need to win 98 of those if they want to finish with a better than 500 interleague record for the 15th consecutive season. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I never know. I write this post every single season, I think, at some point, usually yeah. when I'm looking for something quick, and I never know if anyone cares. I never know if I care, but... The longer it goes, the more interesting it does become just because everyone mm-hmm. likes a streak, right? It doesn't really matter what the streak is. It's just it's a streak. Like, unfortunately, Eric Lauer just had his pickoff streak end at five. Uh-huh. That, was, that would have been a fun one. If that got the 15, I don't know what would have been happening, but at a, <laughs> no luck.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, in other news, Vinny Castilla, who is now a special assistant to the GM of the Rockies, was caught on camera bat boning. I don't know whether you saw this, but he is uh, very vigorously bat boning in the Rockies clubhouse with a giant bone. And so now people who hadn't heard our podcast about bat boning are now suddenly discovering bat boning all over the internet. So welcome to the converts to bat boning, and uh, welcome to Vinny Castilla, who still looks good, still looks like he could play, probably. He's keeping in shape, and bat boning appears to be pretty good exercise, judging by how much work he's putting into this. It's such a big bone. It's a giant (laughs) bone. I guess it would have to be. But man,
0: I mean, I guess if you're Vinny Castilla, you've probably, I don't know a lot about Vinny Castilla, but he seems like the kind of person who, if he's going to invest in any bones, he would invest in like the biggest bones on his, in his neighborhood. You know, like he <laughs> wants to, to show off. Like look at this mammoth bone that I purchased from the, the history museum. You know, like he was yeah. in the majors for a long time. He's got money to spend. He wants to show it off.
1: Mm-hmm. And then last thing I, Got to say, I'm kind of enjoying how the Giants are self-owning with this whole beanball war that they're in with the Marlins right now. So for anyone who hasn't been following this, there is a, a back and forth here where Lewis Brinson had a walk-off hit recently against the Giants, and he was happy about it. And so the Giants were unhappy about how happy Lewis Brinson was. <laughs> And so that started a whole thing. Arguably, it started even before that because the Marlins hit Evan Longoria, who broke, what, a finger? And he's out for six Mm -hmm. to eight weeks. And so maybe that started the bad blood. I don't know whether there was any intention to that or whether the Giants thought there was. But anyway, Brinson was celebrating. This was... With Hunter Strickland pitching and Strickland was pitching very poorly so he was kind of yapping at Brinson and then he leaves the game he does the time-honored dumb pitcher thing of punching a door because you're angry about how poorly you were pitching and he broke his hand so now his hand is broken and he's out for quite some time and then the next day giant starter Derek Rodriguez, Pudge's son Hits Brinson with a first pitch fastball in retaliation, I guess, for being happy about his hit. And then Dan Straley hits Buster Posey, which, if you're the Giants, the last thing in the world you want is for anyone to hit Buster Posey and risk losing him. In addition to losing Longoria and Strickland, they've already they're already down two players with broken bones here, and now they're courting disaster by encouraging the other team to fight back by hitting Buster Posey. Fortunately, Posey is okay. And then prior to that game, Mark Melanson went on the radio and said that Brinson was disrespecting the game. There's nothing wrong with being excited and happy, but holding the bat out too long and flipping the bat, then rounding first and continuing to jaw. To me, it looked like he was looking right at Strickland. That's just showing a guy up and it's not needed. Anyway, it seems like the Giants are just kind of getting themselves into a deeper and deeper hole here and losing more and more players to injury. I have nothing against the Giants, but I kind of hope that until this silliness with Beanball Wars ends, it's just like every team just keeps losing players and defeating themselves.
0: Imagine picking a fight with the Marlins. Now, right. Now, quietly— Where do you think, for you, Hunter Strickland ranks on the list of baseball players, major league baseball players, with whom you would like to spend time the least? Because for (laughs) me, it's like top five, no question. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. It's way up there. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's definitely true. He just – he looks – like too much of a intense type of red ass player for me to even be in the same room with him for very long, <laughs> so yeah anyway this is this is very silly. I, I think uh, if the Marlins were to lose Lewis Brinson, it would not be a very big blow. But if the Giants were to lose any of these players, it would be just both because of where the giants are in the race and because of how good Lewis Brinson is relative to these other players. Anyway, if you are dumb enough to get yourself in this situation, you you kind of deserve to have punched something and broken your hand. That's just fitting.
0: I was going to <laughs> make a dumb joke about how well you know. Of course, he was celebrating. He was Lewis Brinson's first hit of the season. But you know, to his credit, he's got his batting average up to one eighty. Well, it's mm. it's up. Is the point. And uh, yeah. and in the month of June, not counting Wednesday. He's got a 926 OPS, so Lewis Brinson wow. finally showing some signs of life. Also, this I know this is not very interesting, but there's uh, one thing I noticed. We've never talked about Jose Urania because why, you know, would mm-hmm. we? But sure. he's a pitcher. He's on the Marlins. He pitches a lot. So I, one of the things about opening day when the season starts is that I, and I think you also pay attention to, like, everything. Everything is new and fresh. Mm-hmm. And interesting. And in the first half of the first game for the Marlins, they were playing the Cubs. And this was uh this was Jose Urania's first inning. Home run, walk, hit by pitch, strike out, ground out, hit by pitch, walk, hit by pitch, ground out. Two walks, three hit by pitches, and a home run. Jose Urania, kinda wild, I understand. I never thought about him again. I just kinda let that half inning sit in my brain. Jose Urania has one of the lowest walk rates in baseball. Hmm. He, I just assumed from that inning alone, like here's a hard thrower who just has absolutely no idea where the ball is going to go. He walked four in that game. Hasn't since walked more than two in a game. (laughs) Wow. Which is incredible. So there's something going positive going on with Jose Urania. I know I think he's lost or is going to lose. On uh, on Wednesday, walked two batters, but still, if you like me, created a first impression of Jose Urania based on that inning against the Cubs. No, that is not what he is. He's <laughs> apparently a strike thrower. I don't know how or why. I will probably never write about him because you also understand how little incentive there is to write like an analytical <laughs> post about the Marlins. But at least it's out there. Jose Urania mm-hmm. not too wild.
1: Yes, that is kind of the opposite of Harlene Garcia, whom a lot of people were calling Jarlin the Marlin, even though that's not how you pronounce his name. But he started off very impressively and uh, then quickly became a lot less impressive. I believe he is now <laughs> a New Orleans baby cake, which is the Marlins AAA affiliate now. They're the baby cakes. And if you haven't looked at their logo, don't. It's very disturbing.
0: <laughs> I got my brother a... Uh, KBK's hat for his uh, for his birthday. It's a fun... If you struggle to know what to get, any uh, brothers or sisters or dads or sons, just gifts, people like hats, like baseball, fun one, mm-hmm. just uh, always get them a new weird minor league hat. There are plenty to choose from. Yes. Just yesterday, it was a Jurassic Park Day at the Portland Pickles game. Portland mm-hmm. Pickles have a bunch of different merchandise. So like even teams at that level have a whole variety of different hats. So, you know, yeah. could have gotten an Eclipse game hat. From last year, I think that was a special thing
1: Yeah, at times I I feel like it's almost Manipulative though, right? Because they have these Consulting companies that come in to dream up the wackiest names they can think of for these teams and it's all focus grouped and it's it's basically done so that you will do that, so that you will buy the hat because haha, this minor league team has this silly name and silly logo and it has no connection to the city in any way and it just feels kind of cold and calculating in a way, but I guess it works. I like it when teams organically have strange names, but this whole thing feels a bit too designed for my taste.
0: Yeah, the baby cakes, I I get... Uh, what it's about. I get the relationship. What confuses me is a king cake is not really a baby cake. It's like a cake with a baby. So, if uh-huh. anything, they should be called the cake babies.
1: <laughs>
0: but yeah. otherwise, yeah, it's, they they got it backwards and I don't know why the baby is angry. It's Jesus. It's supposed to be Jesus, I think, in a <laughs> king cake, right?
1: Uh-huh.
0: I, am I don't like, know. I'm forgetting what I grew up with here, but let's just pretend it's Jesus while I do a little quick Googling to confirm, see if I'm <laughs> making a real ass myself. <laughs> The cake often has a small plastic baby to represent the baby Jesus inside or underneath. Absolutely. So, I don't know why the baby on the baby cake's hat is so mad. Maybe Jesus just has a temper, thinks that he's better <laughs> than minor league baseball, but also shouldn't be affiliated with
1: the Marlins. <laughs> Yeah, baby cake is kind of a a creepy concept anyway. (laughs) The whole idea sort of disturbs me. (laughs) All right, let's do some emails. So we got an email from Spencer, and as some of you will recall, Spencer is the one who originally wrote in claiming that he could discern the sound of strikes, which is something that we asked Dale Scott about the other day. Can you hear strikes? And Dale Scott says no. So Spencer writes in, just finished listening to episode 1232 with Dale Scott. And since he was asked directly about this, I assume that will be the end of the Sounds of Strikes discussion. Nevertheless, I figured I'd send a quick follow-up on how my opinion has reversed since my original email. At the time, I think I was keying into two things, how squarely the ball was caught and the crowd's reaction, which I think was heavily affecting my judgment. When it was first addressed in episode 1217, Ben suggested doing an experiment to see how well someone could identify pitches by sound. So I took that suggestion and informally tested myself. The results were not good. Over the course of an evening, I watched one to two innings of several different games with the park audio on, trying to mute my computer's audio as quickly as I could after hearing the catch and switching back to the video after to see if I'd made a correct call. My accuracy in identifying pitches correctly was worse than 50%. Particularly, I was often fooled by the sound of pitches that were way out of the zone or on obvious strikes. Dale Scott identified all of this right away in his response to the question. I thought it highlighted just how knowledgeable umpires really are. With very little context, he identified all of the shortcomings of this theory and explained how it couldn't really work. Thanks again for entertaining this silly theory for so long. And thanks to Spencer for proposing it because it was fun to talk about. And thanks also for being willing to re-examine your beliefs, which not everyone is willing to do. He actually tested himself and he has changed his mind. So I applaud Spencer for this.
0: I agree. Very few people will go that far. And to Dale Scott's credit and to the credit of all umpires, when you do that you do that for so many years and years, it's easy to just sit on the outside, see something happen and say, well, all these umpires are incompetent, but they know so much about yeah. what they do and what they're supposed to do. They know so much about baseball that you would never even imagine. Umpires just look at the game in a completely different lens. So, Dale Scott, I defer to his expertise on most things, except maybe Jose (laughs)
1: Urania. All right. Elliot says, While listening to a Dodgers versus Pirates game on the radio this evening, I came to the irrational dilemma that I couldn't prove the game was actually happening. Being in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada I don't see any live games So who's to say that the tinfoil hats aren't right And the whole thing is scripted to make money My question is If an entire game, play-by-play Color, analysis, commentator stories From being a player Observations of fan hijinks, commercial breaks Other game highlights, etc. Were written by a screenwriter Like, say, Aaron Sorkin Would you be able to tell? What would tip you off? So if there was some sort of attempt at a hoax here like a truman show scenario where a game wasn't actually going on but everyone was trying to convince you that a game was going on how would you know that it wasn't actually going on without being there
0: but you're are you you're watching a game
1: well you're listening on the radio elliot listening, was listening on the radio okay yeah. okay yeah.
0: i didn't pick that part up yeah so how deep does the hoax go is there a crowd that's the question
1: yeah. There, well, there better be crowd noise. It's kind of like like in the old days, I think Vince Scully at times did broadcasts where he wasn't actually there, right? He would get like updates on the play-by-play via telegraph and then he would just read it out and there'd maybe be some fake crowd noise in the background. I mean, it's even like there are World Cup broadcasters now who are calling World Cup matches and are not actually at the game. Of course, those matches are actually happening. But this is something that they used to do. I think maybe Ronald Reagan used to do this on the radio too, call games when he wasn't actually there. So you could stage it in a sense. And that is the question. How deep does it go? Like if you open up at bat on your phone, does it have the play by play? If you open up game day on your browser, are they all in on this? Is everyone trying to put something past you here? I mean, I guess there's no way that you could tell if all of the things that surround a game were still in place.
0: So this reminds me, uh, we have one of our podcast listeners, uh, Jesse Goldberg Strassler. He is the announcer for the Lansing Lugnuts, and when I was Mm -hmm. in communication with him and and just researching his background the way that you always research the people that you're talking to through email privately. So what Mm -hmm. he does, I'll just uh, read an article here from the the com. This is from 2015. Uh, Lansing Lugnuts radio broadcaster Jesse goldberg Strassler continued one of the Midwest League's most unique traditions Tuesday, calling a game without watching it. Uh The annual event is a nod to baseball's broadcasting's roots. Always done on or around the anniversary of the first baseball broadcast, Harold Arlen described the Pirates-Phillies game at Forbes Field for KDKA on August 5th, 1921. The game is called from an area of the press box without a view of the field with props and canned crowd noise providing the special effects accompanying the broadcaster's voice. He, uh, Mm -hmm. He first did a recreation broadcast as an intern in 2005 and he was forced to do another one as the Windy City Thunderbolts broadcaster in 2008 when a thunderstorm knocked out the internet in the press box. It was an internet-only broadcast, and the only place in the park that still had access was the front office, so Goldberg Strassler and his radio partner moved their equipment there and called the game without watching it. That game turned out to be a no-hitter? Are you serious?
1: (laughs) Wow. Wow. Well, anyway,
0: so there's more to to the article, but that would be... Uh, That's an example of someone calling a game without watching it, which is not the same as making up a game exactly. But Mm -hmm. I mean, if they put in mm, two weeks of preparation to just really convince you about this, Mm -hmm. I don't know what their end game is since it just requires a lot of time and resources. And also it's the radio. So Mm -hmm. why? But otherwise, (laughs) I don't I mean, they could do a pretty convincing job. I don't know if I would ever get tipped off.
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, it's we've talked about many times how when there are baseball scenes in a movie or a TV show, almost always there's something wrong. There's something that stands out to someone like us who's seen a lot of baseball as not being authentic, but those things aren't usually made by actual baseball people and broadcasters, so... If those people were to sit down and try to fool me, I'm sure that they could. They could even take a, a real game that happened at some point. I wouldn't realize that they were just playing out a game that had happened in the past. So yeah, I think you could make it convincing. I mean, Problem is that there's MLB TV now, and so anyone could just go and check. I guess you could set it up so that it just said buffering or something, and (laughs) and people would probably be like, oh, yeah, that's MLB TV. It's just not working today because that happens. But other than that, I think you could do it. Sure. So. Now, if you're listening to baseball on the radio, you will always think this from now on that you don't know for sure whether a game is actually happening or not.
0: It would be really easy to, if you just opened up game day to call a game after the fact, it would be easy for, for Mm -hmm. a a radio broadcast to do that. Yeah, sure. Radio broadcasts are so low budget, but if you were, if you were like really suspicious about this, which there would be no reason, and also who's paying that close attention to the radio anyway, (laughs) but. I think if there were to be a giveaway assuming that these people are competent it would be it would have to be in the pacing if if it just seemed mm. like there wasn't enough time or there was too much time between events then I yeah. think you could start to think like something here doesn't quite add up but that's that's about it.
1: Mhm. All right, question from Ben. Haven't seen a game he's pitched yet this year. In fact, you don't know whether he has pitched a game this year. It could be a hoax, but what is going <laughs> on with John Gray? He has an xfip of 3.03. But an ERA of 5.89, I mean, I get pitching in Colorado can be tough, but that can't be it. Where does the discrepancy come from? And yeah, John Gray has a pretty interesting stat line because last year he seemed to kind of conquer Coors Field to the extent that you can. He was a legitimately good starting pitcher despite being a Rockies starting pitcher and even had an ERA that looked good for a non-Rockies pitcher. And this year his FIP is... Almost exactly the same as it was last year. His xFIP is lower than it was last year. He's getting more strikeouts. He is pitching pretty well, you would think, except that yeah, he has an almost six ERA right now.
0: Yeah, so I was just looking at this yesterday, just by coincidence, and so this is uh, fairly easy. When John Gray is pitched with the bases empty, he's allowed a WOBA of three ten. When there have been people on base, it is three seventy four. As another way of looking mm-hmm. at this, wow. John Gray's strikeout minus walk rate with the bases empty Mm -hmm. is an elite 31%. Mm. With people on base, 7%. His strikeout rate is cut in half. His walk rate is doubled. So when you look at that, I assume John Gray is someone who pitches out of the stretch and also out of the windup. You look at that and you figure, well, here's a guy who is having a world of trouble out of the stretch. Now, interestingly, last season... No such split, nothing at all, nothing there. He was very good out of the stretch and the windup, assuming he uses them both. So I don't know if it's like a real mechanical thing, but essentially the explanation here is that he has pitched very poorly at the exact wrong times to pitch poorly uh, with regard to preventing runners from scoring. So I assume Mm -hmm. that will clean up. I can't imagine this kind of split would continue, but it does remind me. I think maybe we've talked about this before. On uh, on the podcast, but do you remember talking about Brandon Maurer and his career splits? Yeah, I think so. Great. Well, then maybe I don't need to bring it up again. <laughs> he is uh, he is back in the majors this year. The Royals mm-hmm. they just called him up. His ERA is over eleven, but thankfully his FIP is also over eleven. But just in case, in case I guess anyone has forgotten, Brandon Maurer over his major league career with the bases empty has allowed a WOBA of two ninety, and with mm-hmm. the bases not empty, it's three eighty six. Brandon Maurer. <laughs> Not able to pitch with runners on base.
1: Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, John Gray has a 3.75 BABIP right now. That's uh, that's not what you want either. And uh, he also has. Let's see. He has a. percent strand rate right now so that is uh 61.2 percent of the base runners he gets on end up stranded on base and the league average is 73.4 percent so that's not good and that goes hand in hand with what you're talking about with him pitching very poorly when runners on base so it's probably not something that will continue it could be something mechanical but he's still good
0: I meant to ask you, this is unrelated to that, although it's another Jonathan. So the Yankees have a uh, a young pitcher named Jonathan Loizaga. Yes. And uh, how do you feel about the nickname Johnny Lasagna? Because for <laughs> me, it's a 9 out of 10.
1: <laughs> it's pretty good. And he's fine with it, right? He, he's okay with it because his name is kind of hard to pronounce. So at least according to what I read in Travis Sachik's article where he had an embedded tweet from a writer who said that people call him Lasagna because they can't pronounce his last name. And if he's all right with it, I'm all right with it. I like it.
0: I don't think it's that weird of a name. Also, he's from Nicaragua, not Italy, so in that sense, mm-hmm. you could say that it's inappropriate or something. But John Lozani just rolls right off the tongue. I would, yeah, if I had that as a potential nickname, I would try to slap it on the first player. It
1: barely fit. <laughs> right. All right, Chris Patreon supporter says, following from your Shohei Otani discussion. What do you think would happen if every pitcher in MLB had to have an MRI on his shoulder and elbow in the preseason, and the results from every scan were made available to all teams, reporters, bloggers, and the general public?
0: Well, the the players would feel like their their rights are being abused. Probably, yeah, they, they, they would do. Be right, but yeah, I mean, they they do all get screened. I don't know the extent to which they get screened before and after the season, but a lot of teams will take images to use as baselines for comparison later but that's different that's Mm -hmm. not making things available to everyone why would you make them (laughs) available to everyone what is the benefit here open source i don't know
1: i mean i think if this were to happen probably there would be mass panic about every pitcher right because every pitcher has some sort of damage in his shoulder and elbow. At least that's what you hear just from the accumulated strain. Like no one's shoulder, elbow looks like a normal human being's if you've been throwing a pitch for some number of years, as every MLB pitcher has. So I think there would be a lot of concern that would be misplaced. I mean, I think you'd get people overreacting to the damage. You'd get all sorts of people becoming Amateur MRI readers, (laughs) you know, you'd be like people (laughs) with zero expertise trying to figure out what an MRI says, which would be pretty terrible, I think, and... I don't know if every team knew about it. I guess it wouldn't really matter for teams, right? Because if you're going to acquire a player, you get access to his medical records and MRIs. And unless you're acquiring a, a player that was on the Padres or something and has had falsified medical records, you would have access to this anyway. So that might not change things, but it might change, I don't know, whom you try to acquire or, or think of as a trade target. Anyway, it would be very bad for everyone involved, I think.
0: There would, be, there would definitely be like a, a cottage industry of baseball writers who either have a background of radiology right. or, yes. I don't know, being an orthopedist, or they just mm-hmm. learn a lot about it. Maybe and they're in the process, and so you'd have a lot more injury-related writers Uh, But then they would also just be looking for injuries everywhere, which, granted, when you're dealing with pitchers, there are. Every pitcher Mm -hmm. is hurt. That's probably the best way to think of it. Every single pitcher who has pitched, is pitching, or will pitch, is injured to some extent. But the ones who are pitching now are just injured and functional. But they will probably not be like that for long.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's not do this. Nat says, Why can Japanese and Korean teams use names like the LG Twins with uniforms that look quite a bit like the Minnesota Twins and the Yomiuri Giants with uniforms that look quite a bit like the San Francisco Giants? Aren't those names and uniforms trademarked? Although I assume that U.S. trademark law doesn't reach Asia, I figure that U.S. courts could make life unpleasant enough for the teams, including companies like LG, that they would change the name. Do U.S. teams license the names to Asian teams? I could not figure out the answer to this question. I tried looking, and there have been a lot of copyright claims that MLB has made, even going to like Little League. There have been times where MLB has lodged complaints because a Little League team or some other amateur team had the same name and uniform as a baseball team, and they had to change, and it became a problem. But I couldn't figure out anything about this, so I asked MLB. I asked MLB spokesman Michael Teven about this, and he checked with someone, and he got back to me, and he said, MLB clubs claim trademark rights in their nicknames worldwide. However, the scope of rights varies based on a variety of factors, including the applicable country's laws and the use made by the MLB clubs and by others. To certain degrees and in certain instances, nicknames can coexist. To answer the listener's question, MLB clubs have not licensed their names to Asian teams. So that answers that. They have not licensed their names. doesn't necessarily answer how they get away with using those names and uniforms despite not having licensed them. I guess it's just one of those certain degrees and certain instances. So... I don't know whether it has to do with the laws of those countries or whether it just has something to do with maybe MLB thinking it's advantageous to have that relationship there. But for whatever reason, it is not a licensing arrangement. And now we know.
0: Well, gosh, breaking news. A lawsuit has uh-huh. been filed against the Yuri Giants <laughs> for copyright infringement.
1: <laughs> oh, I, no, guess I, now- <laughs> I ratted them out. I'm an arc.
0: This makes me wonder now about the when we were talking about the Port Angeles Lefties of the West Coast League yeah. and they wanted to be the Marmots but they didn't want to get in trouble with the with the company with the outdoor clothing company Marmot. Mm-hmm. Now I know that's mm-hmm. all in the same country so maybe that would have happened but the Port Angeles Marmots would be so small fries compared to the Yomiuri Giants or the healthy <laughs> Twins that right. I don't know. I feel like they probably could have tried it. I understand their operating budget is like $17, but nevertheless, <laughs> marmots, uh, it would have been more appealing than lefties. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Do you have a step blast? Very quick one. The they'll take a data set sorted by something like R-A-minus or O-B-S-plus, and then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it by...
0: It's basically stolen from one of our listeners. Uh, I don't know his name, but his Twitter handle is at BravesStats. He will, mm-hmm. I, he tweets us, I think, fairly common. And so yes. we were talking about Max Stacey uh, recently. He is still a rookie, and one thing that struck me as kind of funny and weird about Max Stacey is that he's a rookie, but also he has appeared in the majors for six consecutive seasons. So his rookie eligibility is intact, but even before this year, he was in the majors for five years. Well, he posted a screenshot and I also confirmed with a play index search, you can look for the players who have the most seasons in which they still have their rookie eligibility. So, mm. Max Stacey has six, has presumably exceeded the rookie threshold now, so he will not have a seventh, but he is one of, my goodness, he is one of 35 minus seven, 28, 28 <laughs> players who have six seasons of rookie yeah. eligibility. However... There are seven players with seven of them, and their names are as follows. Stuffy Stewart, Stuffy, Stuffy Stewart, Bob Garbark, that's a fun one, Adrian Garrett, Gil Reyes, Jeff Kaiser, Raul Chavez, and Paul Hoover, Paul Hoover being the most recently active. Paul Hoover is featured on Baseball Reference wearing a Tampa Bay Devil Rays cap. He debuted in the major leagues in the year 2001, and he exceeded his rookie status in the year 2011. So Paul Hoover came up, played for the Devil Rays, made four plate appearances in 2001, was with the Devil Rays again in 2002, and then he was with the Marlins. He really could pick them back then, 2006 (laughs) through 2008 with the Marlins, and then the Phillies, 2009 and 2010. So Paul Hoover, the most recent guy with seven years of rookie eligibility. Raul Chavez, also a fairly recent player in the major leagues. Raul Chavez, he was a catcher. I think probably, I'm going to guess most of these guys are... Catcher's Raul Chavez debuted in 1996. He exceeded his rookie limits in 2004. So that's a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, what? I, I think the Adrian Garrett. No, that's not the most interesting one. Bob Garbark. Bob Garbark. You already know it's the most interesting one because his name is Garbark. So he debuted in 1934 and he exceeded his rookie status limits in 1945. So that's 11 years Bob Garbark last played. About a whole
1: world war in between <laughs> while he was a rookie. Man. Yeah.
0: And the, uh, <laughs> he finally got to play fairly regularly in 1945 with the Boston Red Sox. And he batted 225 times. He was uh, – well, he was – just good enough to not play anymore after that. So, you know, I didn't do, I didn't read all the saber backgrounds of these players. I don't know what there is that's interesting about them, but had not occurred to me to check on accumulated years of rookie status. So thank you at Brave Stats. I liked that yeah. query.
1: Yeah. So no one's gone on to greatness after being a rookie for seven years, it sounds like. It
0: does not look like it.
1: Yeah, Chavez did get into 11 major league seasons, but he also finished with a war of 0.0. Yep. So yeah, if you do this, you're, you're basically the, the prototypical replacement level player, right? You're the archetype. If you're just getting into games, but not enough to lose your rookie eligibility for seven years. <laughs> if you are curious. Oh my goodness. Okay. So we've got, <laughs> we've got
0: a few cases here. I did not notice. So a couple guys who have six years of rookie eligibility, just like Max Stacy. So we have a Rich Sauvur, Sauvur, Richard Daniel Sauvur. If he can come on the podcast and correct me, I, that's fine. He debuted in 1986. He mm-hmm. exceeded his rookie limits in the year 2000. And <laughs> we have Eric Bullock. I can pronounce his name. He debuted in 1985. Well, he exceeded his rookie years in in 1991, I don't know why that stuck out to me. So let's just focus on Rich Sour, sour Viewer. That's a, a difficult one for me. But nevertheless, what was that, 14 years between debuting and losing rookie status? He did not get any support for Rookie of the Year.
1: According to his baseball reference bullpen page, he holds the record for most clubs pitched for without a win. <laughs> he had one decision. It was a loss. Yeah. I'm going to look up this
0: loss. 1992, I don't know if this is going to be interesting. We're just going to do it live. Rich S. got a loss in a game where the Royals played the Rangers. He uh, he went two innings. He allowed three runs. He was pitching in the third through the fifth innings. What is he doing? Luis Aquino started the game. He went two and a third, allowed no runs, and then that was it. And then in came Rich. He got the loss. His only decision. He was replaced in the game by Rusty Meacham and Steve Shifflett. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. At this, at some point, I'm just going to end up reading names off baseball reference. The point is. His
1: 18 season minor league career for him. And he finished with a 2.91 ERA in the minors. What? And that's not even just lower minors. He had a 2.9 ERA. So better than his overall minor league ERA in AAA. 14 seasons in AAA with a 2.9 ERA. And somehow he gets 43 innings in the majors over 14 years? That seems unjust. Why did
0: he keep pitching? And So, okay, on the one hand, you could say, why did he keep pitching until he was 36? On the other hand, when he was 36, he got into 10 major league games. So you could say he made it and looking at his looking at his list here How did here, he not
1: get more of a chance at some point
0: never had to go to the independent leagues it doesn't look like no, he was always in the big leagues
1: yeah i thought i was going to see like japan mexico you know who knows where but yeah. no he's he was just in triple a that entire time basically like he was in double a in the mid 80s and then after that it was just triple a triple a triple a and pitching well every year and somehow just never really getting the call. That well, is amazing.
0: I don't want to get ahead of us here, but he appears to be still alive. So yes, <laughs> there's yeah, a possibility we, there. We may at least ask him how his name is pronounced.
1: Yeah, he's actually a longtime coach and is now the pitching coach for the Kane County Cougars. All right. So I have a somewhat stat-blasty response here. So... This is a question from Kyle who says, In Monday's Cardinals at Phillies game, the Phillies have a two-run lead or had a two-run lead with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. The Cardinals had runners at second and third. Victor Arano then struck out Yairo Munoz, who reached first on a wild pitch that also scored Yadier Molina. Fangraphs has this strikeout having a positive win probability added. And that is true, or it's true at Baseball Reference where I looked at it. This was a 5% increase in win expectancy this strikeout obviously it's technically not the strikeout itself but the wild pitch and then reaching base so kyle says this got me thinking what is the highest win probability added strikeout of all time so i asked dan hirsch who is of course the proprietor of the baseball gauge and at this point answers stat blast questions just about every week (laughs) Go check out the baseball gauge, people. It's great. So he checked his whole database for the strikeout that produced the most positive value for the team that struck out. So according to win probability added, he says the best strikeout of all time in the batting team's favor came on August 29th, 1976. This was the bottom of the ninth inning, two outs, runners on first and second. Ron Reed struck out the Reds' George Foster. But a passed ball by Bob Boone allowed Pete Rose to score from second. The Reds eventually won it in 15 innings. I have that at a 46.2% increase in win probability added. Baseball Reference has it at 47%. So that is the highest WPA strikeout of all time. It was almost worth half a win, essentially. And then, according to championship WPA, so Dan has this version of win probability added that is not your odds of winning the game, but your odds of winning the World Series, basically. So according to championship WPA, the biggest strikeout came in Game 1 of the 1907 World Series, bottom of the ninth, two outs, runners on second and third, Wild Bill Donovan struck out Del Howard, an error by the catcher allowed Harry Steinfeld to score, tying the game it eventually ended in a tie after 12 innings. That was worth 0. 0.128 CWPA, so 12.8% of a World Series win. Obviously, you could say that the strikeout is not the helpful thing. It's what happens after the strikeout. But the way that the whole win probability accounting system works, it's just lumped in together the, the batter-reaching base and the strikeout itself. So that's the answer.
0: Wow. I uh, I had been curious because earlier this season— The Mariners recorded a two-run strikeout. I was not able to easily research other two-run strikeouts. This is even better. I like this
1: more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What was the date? The date of the the first one? It was uh, August 29th, 1976.
0: August 29th, 1976. Let me just pull up this game see what we got going on. Mm -hmm. So, Ron Reed, August 29th. Well, I can tell you that on August 29th, Ron... (laughs) Ron Reed picked up a blown save in the third consecutive game. So uh-huh. Ron Reed blew a save on August 26th. He blew a save on August 28th. Then he blew a save on August 29th <laughs> in a game that the Phillies ultimately lost. Now, obviously, this blown save was for uh, it, it deserves a little bit of an asterisk, but mm-hmm. let's see. So we've got uh, we've got Ron Reed, the uh, bottom of the ninth, and it's a it's a one run game. We got a walk, a stolen base. Single, puts runners in the corners, fielder's choice, out at home, line out, and then Mm -hmm. strikeout passed ball, tying run scores from second. So Mm -hmm. there was already an out at home in the inning and a line out. So like, Ron Reed was trying to blow this game, and then he gets the third out, and still that wasn't, I I don't think I've ever, I can't think of a time seeing a runner score from second to base on a strikeout. How the hell (laughs) passed ball
1: was that? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, must have been a distant backstop or something
0: Final battle of the inning, Johnny Bench fly out deep center field Ron Reed, (laughs) just the complete opposite of every result he was supposed to get in that inning
1: Yeah, you could say he had hard luck, but really he got lucky before the hard luck So I think it all evened out in that case All right, Michael, Patreon supporter says At 40 years old, Kevin Cash is the youngest manager in the big leagues The Rays currently sit at 29 and 35. Well, they don't anymore, but they did when we got this question. And while things aren't quite this dire for them yet, this got me thinking, has any team ever finished a season with fewer wins than their manager's age? Given that some have managed into old age, I feel like it has happened, but I'm not sure. Given the trend of teams hiring younger managers, will this soon be impossible, even in a world where the Reds exist? So the obvious example of this happening, I think, is Connie Mack, who, of course, was (laughs) in the game forever, managed until he was 87 years old with the 1950 Philadelphia Athletics. So I immediately went to Connie Mack's page. Connie Mack had a higher age than his team's win total. In his last 17 seasons (laughs) as manager, (laughs) this was a combination of Connie Mack being very old and his Philadelphia A's being very bad in those days for the most part, but not even. Like his second to last season, they won 81 games the year before that. They won 84 games, but he was 85 at that point. And in his last season, he was 87 and they won 52 games. So yeah, that happened for a very long time. I'm sure it's happened at other times. Well, question for you. Okay.
0: Buck Showalter Mm. is 62. Red Yost is 63, turning Uh 64 in August. Did yeah, the Orioles get to sixty-two wins, or will the Royals get to sixty-three? Because I don't.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think so either. Right? This is going to happen. The Orioles right now—they're what? They have a two eighty-two uh, <laughs> winning percentage. Oh no! So that puts them on pace for a forty-six win season. <laughs> so uh, yeah, either they have to get a lot better, or Buck Showalter has to age in reverse, or this I mean, is going to happen.
0: They only have to win. 42 more games to tie Buck Showalter's age, but over the rest Mm -hmm. of the season, that still puts them on a 462 winning percentage, which over a full season would be a 75-win base. They're going to trade Manny Machado and everyone good on their baseball team. This is going to happen. I don't know about the Royals, but the Orioles, yeah.
1: Yeah, almost certainly. All right. Andrew Patreon says, what is the most number of games in which a player has appeared in a single season? And then he has some follow-ups. If two teams are looking for a pure rental at the trade deadline, but one team has five extra regular season games than the other, would you expect it to affect their offers? If a player were chasing a seasonal milestone And he was traded from one team to another Solely so he could have five extra games How would people view his record? By my calculations There will be regular season games on 182 days this year If a bad but durable player Think Alcides Escobar Wanted this to be his legacy Similar to guys playing all nine positions in a game And he could convince teams to trade him among themselves Would the league ever step in and deny one of his trades? (laughs) So maybe you've been researching searching this already but i
0: can tell you my favorite part of this
1: okay go ahead
0: i'll just say so when you search for this on uh, on baseball reference which is i'm sure what you're doing too you see a lot of bold ink Mm -hmm. means the league leader Mm -hmm. so there have been five players in baseball history who have played in 164 games in a season Mm
1: -hmm. six right six players I think. well
0: yeah so five specifically 164 ah yes okay jose pagan In 1962, got into 164 games, and in that season, Mm -hmm. he did not lead the league in games in which he appeared,
1: (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) Because
0: of the name that you will say.
1: Yes, Maury Wills is the all-time record holder for games played in a single season. He played 165 games that same season, 1962. Then it was Frank Tavares, 164-1979, Cesar Tovar with 164-1967, and Ron Santo and Billy Williams for the 1965 Cubs, both of them. So I think there is an explanation other than a trade for almost all of these, and Andrew, our Patreon supporter, was doing some research on this himself, so... The Dodgers and the Giants played a three-game tiebreaker to decide the pennant in 1962. So that's how Maury Wills and Jose Pagan made this list in the same year. They were both playing each other in those tiebreaker games. So that's that. And then the Cubs played 164 games in 1965 because they had two games that were called due to darkness, including the first game of the year, which lasted over four hours for 11 innings. The Twins played 164 games in 1967 because they had a one-game tiebreaker, and they had a game called due to rain, so I think Frank Tavares is the only one. He's 1979, Frank Tavares, he's the only one of these who was traded, so he played 11 games for Pittsburgh and 153 games for the Mets, but he also got one extra game with the Mets because they had a game called after 11 innings for Dense Fog against his former team, the Pirates. So. He's the only one, so there hasn't really been anyone who's taken advantage of the scenario of playing many more games by being traded from one team that has played more games to a team that hasn't played as many games. But if you wanted to do it this year, I think the best candidate would be Freddy Galvis, right? Because Freddy Galvis has played in every Padres game, so he's played in 76 games so far. If Freddy Galvis were to be traded to the Twins, the Twins, through Wednesday... Have only played seventy games, so they played six fewer games than the Padres because of all of that terrible weather that was just bringing the AL Central to a halt in April. So, in theory, Freddie Galvis could still play one hundred sixty-eight games this season if he were traded from the Padres to the Twins, and I now hope that that happens.
0: <laughs> so that would be. Great. Now the Twins have a shortstop coming back from the suspended list. But also, have you seen – do you know anything about Eduardo Escobar? Like, have you ever considered Eduardo Escobar in your life?
1: (laughs) Not at great length.
0: Eduardo Escobar is slugging 586. Yeah. (laughs) Eduardo Escobar doesn't
1: stand 5 feet 8 inches. He is one of the twins who had a a really good second half last year, right? He improved in the the second half of the season. Well, so
0: in the least racist way possible, I do confuse (laughs) Eduardo Escobar and Eddie Rosario because of the similar Mm -hmm. first names, Eduardo and Eddie. Yes. So that's, I mean, that's basically it. I don't watch a whole lot of twins baseball. I know Eddie Rosario had a big second half last year. However, Mm. Eduardo Escobar did not. He had a first half WRC Plus of 97 and a second half WRC Plus of 95. He had a good Mm -hmm. September. That was about it. But this little dude just hitting the crap out of the ball. Eduardo Escobar has a 150 WRC Plus. (laughs) 150. One of the best hitters (laughs) in baseball.
1: Yeah. He's a utility no one. Sounds like a Jeff Sullivan post.
0: Yeah, but it's the Twins. (laughs) No one's going to click these things Anyway,
1: if this were to happen I can't imagine that teams would really conspire To make this happen As much fun as it would be I don't know what would be in it for them, really But I think, yeah, I mean If someone set a record Other than games played That would obviously be a record But if someone were chasing some sort of milestone And played 170 games in a season or something Yeah, I think you'd get an asterisk Attached to that If not an actual asterisk At least people would Think about it differently because of it. So, yeah, I think so. And as for whether one team values another player more, I mean, yeah, to a, a slight degree, right? If you have five more games left after the trade deadline or something than the team that is trading the player, then yes, there is a bit more value to the team that would be acquiring that player, although. Not so much because you're probably trading for a guy for the postseason more so than the second half. But if you're in the race and you have more games left, then, yeah, there's more value to you by some small degree.
0: Imagine being the baseball player who's traded so often you just never get an off day. Just, your team is always playing.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would be that'd be pretty rough probably.
0: They should do it to Hunter Strickland.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Jody says, For the past eight years or so, I've helped coach my daughter's fast-pitch softball team, and I've been intrigued with the differences in substitution rules among the various travel leagues we've played in. One of the variations they have on a DH-style position has led me to believe that the following compromise might work for MLB. I've heard a few people propose this idea. So Jody says, change the rules so that the DH is used in both leagues, but tweak the DH rules slightly so that the player listed as the DH on the lineup card is directly tied to the starting pitcher. In other words, instead of the DH being active for the entire game, make it so that the DH is tied to a specific pitcher so when the pitcher is removed, so is the starting DH. Teams could then use a replacement DH, but they'd have to specify that when making a pitching change, sort of like a double switch. What I like about the idea is that it gives fans who no longer want to see terrible pitchers at the plate what they want, and it also gives those NL fans who say, but you'd eliminate a lot of the strategy of the game, some alternative strategy to consider. So in practical terms, if a team had a great DH, like say David Ortiz back in the day, Would the Red Sox feel confident enough about their starting pitcher going deep in the game to start Ortiz as their DH knowing he might only get one to two at-bats? Or would they save Ortiz to use in a higher leverage pinch hitting role? Would teams with great rotations be willing to splurge on a higher priced DH while teams with shaky rotations just use a rotation of bench or utility players? And for teams that use an opener to start a game on the mound, whom would you start at DH knowing that the player would get only one at-bat? There'd be plenty of strategy to consider in this scenario.
0: Well, let's walk through upsides and downsides. Uh, you've thought about this for longer than I have. Now, this would, in a sense, incentivize, it would help starters throw more innings, I think, yeah. Yeah. right? It would help reverse that trend mm-hmm. in a sense, which could be a good thing. But teams would also build out Deeper. Okay, so this would work in a few ways. You would have starters pitching longer, I think. Starters would pitch longer, which would alleviate some burden on the bullpen, which would serve the dual purpose of opening up another bench slot for another hitter who could take over for the DH when the mm-hmm. DH comes out. So you would have more hitters. Maybe you would have less concern about bringing someone up on the bench who can play defense and more about someone who can uh, who can hit Mm -hmm. Like a Calvin Pickering, as long as you're just going (laughs) to pull references out. So starters would be preserved a little bit, and you would have deeper benches of bats. And is there anything else you've been able to come up with?
1: Not really. I think that's about it. It is, as Jody says, it's kind of a compromise. I mean, I can't imagine it happening. I don't think that the DH League, the AL, would go backward toward less DHing, and I think that probably if the NL eventually decides to adopt the DH, they'll just do what has worked in the AL for 45 years. So I don't expect it to happen, but I don't dislike the idea. It's kind of complex, but in a good way.
0: Yeah, I don't hate it either. I would like to reemphasize what you just said. This would be the AL going backwards because Mm -hmm. the DH is good and pitchers hitting Mm -hmm. is stupid. I'm on your side here. (laughs) I just uh, uh, want to <laughs> dilute some of the uh, negative engagement you might be receiving. Thank Although you. I guess people email both of us, so it doesn't really change <laughs> anything. So yeah. anyway, never mind. Let's just move on.
1: <laughs> All right. Yeah. Anyway, it's a, it's a pretty good idea. I like it. I think probably people who hate the idea that DH would be more receptive to this, but it's uh, probably something that will remain in the realm of theory and the abstract. All right. Jacob says the other day when the two of you briefly mentioned the possibility of trading draft picks, I start to think about different things that could happen. Assuming GMs could trade draft picks many years in advance. How many consecutive first round picks would need to be traded in exchange for Mike Trout for the Angels to accept the trade? Knowing the average first-round draft pick is worth about five wins above replacement, and assuming that Mike Trout will accumulate about 25 wins above replacement between now and the end of his contract with the Angels, do you think that about five first-round draft picks would cause the Angels to make the trade, or do you think it would need to be closer to 10 or 15 or 20? Also, would the Angels be less likely to do this if they knew they were trading with a team like the Yankees or the Cardinals who were never tanking and would have picks in the back end of the first round as opposed to a team that may give back higher-valued picks? Lastly, can we agree that Jerry DePoto would make the trade within hours of this rule being instated?
0: I would imagine that Jerry DePoto is already trying. He's probably <laughs> petitioned the league to allow him to trade as many things as he can, probably try to trade his office. So there are a few things here. One, if you were trading my track to a team, that team is probably trying to win, it's trying to build, so you're, that team is not likely at least maybe they're very bad at building, but mm-hmm. that team is trying to be competitive, which means you will probably be getting picks in the back half of the draft, at least in the shorter term. So that's mm-hmm. bad. I think GMs and base presidents of baseball operations would be disincentivized to care at all about first-run picks that are like eight, nine, or ten years off. I don't think that means mm-hmm. anything to them. The present value of a 1st round draft pick in like nine years is basically nil. We could all be dead mm-hmm. or alive forever. I don't know. Science could go either way. <laughs> So sure. I don't actually think if you had first round picks, I don't think that there's any number that you could trade. If you were just trading first round picks alone, I don't think you could get Mike Trout. Uh I think it's one thing if you were like, I guarantee you I'm trading you the first overall picks. But outside mm-hmm. of that, like after the first five or six slots, it's all a crapshoot. So I don't think yeah. that you could do it. You could uh, you could pile on like the next two first round picks with prospects to sweeten the package. But that's it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Mike Trout's trade value is lower than it used to be because he's only under contract for two more years and he'll be making $34 million in each of those years. Of course, at the level that he's playing right now, $34 million is an incredible bargain because he is basically the best player ever right now. So there's that, but a little less surplus value to Mike Trout's remaining years with the Angels or under his current contract than there used to be. But still, yeah, I think I agree with you. You know, if it's just a pick in the back half of the round, it's not usually going to be a real impact player and it's just – One a year, and it would be a nice boost to your system, certainly, to have an extra first rounder every year, but I don't know that it's something that a GM would really be incentivized to do, because a GM is not going to be around long enough, really, to reap the rewards of like 20 first round picks in a row or something. He's going to want the guy who's good now, and the Angels are probably not going to make the playoffs right now, but... The only chance that they have is keeping Mike Trout, so I think probably not worth it. Mm-hmm. All right, almost done here. Let's see. I've got this one from Alexander. What if every team got one mulligan a year? It could be used at any time, regular season or postseason, to erase the previous plate appearance and do it again. Give up a walk-off in an important game? Mulligan. Strike out with the bases loaded, down one in the ninth? Mulligan. What would be the optimal strategy for using a mulligan? Would you use it relatively early in the season in a close game against your best division rival, or keep it in your back pocket for the playoffs? Would it end up being underused, like the managers' challenge, with teams holding on to their mulligan until it's no longer useful?
0: Yeah, you definitely wouldn't use it early in the season unless you're a real dum-dum. That would just be a waste. Because <laughs> you're looking, I mean, this would be a Dan Hirsch question, right? We're just looking for a championship win probability <laughs> yeah. added yeah. at some point. Mm-hmm. So you would definitely keep it late now of course there would be teams who uh who drop out of the race and they realize nothing is going to matter for them so they would just use it at some point just for the hell of it but yeah you would have a lot of these i mean especially with teams just fighting for wild card slots a lot of these would be waiting until Uh, Toward the end of the season And then you would have teams Who are like We're going to chance it We want to keep this Into the playoffs When these things Would really matter But you would have Some teams around the wild card Who would be desperate enough To use it then But you would be Strongly Mm -hmm. incentivized To save this for the playoffs
1: Yeah I think Almost everyone would And if not I mean you'd save it Until late in the year When you knew What your playoff odds were And you had some big game In September That you really Really needed to win So I think It would not go unused most times I mean if you just kind of sail through the playoffs maybe you never really need to use it because you keep saving it for an elimination game or something and you never get there but otherwise I think it would usually be used and it would usually be used in the playoffs so it's uh, probably not all that interesting it's an interesting idea but uh, I don't know that it would vary that much in how or when you would use it all right Andrew different Andrew but also a Patreon supporter says how would baseball be different if pitchers didn't know who was batting and just had to pitch based on what's working for them and what the umpire's calling and game theory side note how would barry bonds career have been different in this universe so i asked andrew how this is possible how the pitcher does not know the identity of the batter and he says one way mirror so batters can see them but they can't see the batter also the catcher can't see, which seems like a, a problem. Wait. But uh Where I don't know. is the mirror? That's what I'm wondering. Maybe it's like uh maybe it's like one of those L screens that you put in front of the mound so that you can still throw, but nope. you're pretend no. No. Nope. <laughs> you can see through the L screen. You nope. can't see through the mirror. No, you I need still don't uh, know. you
0: need the men in black zapper, so you just don't know anything about the hitter.
1: Well, yeah, that okay. Or you know, what if you have like face blindness and you just can't distinguish between people? And no one tells you. I don't know exactly how this can be feasible, but if somehow the pitcher did not know the identity of the batter and just had to pitch to him, I mean, I guess for sometimes you could probably just infer who the good hitters are, right? Because if you know you know where in the batting order you are, unless you can't keep track of that, you know that you're facing like the third or fourth hitter or something. So if you are pitching against the Giants during Barry Bonds' peak and you know that Bonds always hits third or whatever, you know when he's up or you can make a pretty good guess when he's up. So there's that. Like you should be able to keep track of when a good hitter is up. You might not necessarily know who the specific hitter is at any one time. So I guess A, there'd be more memorization of what is the typical batting order for this team. So there's that. And, B, I guess you'd just be kind of pitching to your strengths, which is what most pitchers do anyway, right?
0: Yeah. So the, he's right that Barry Bonds' career would be very different if pitchers didn't know it was him. Maybe they would—I don't know. Because this is an impossible universe, I don't know if they would, like, start to figure out that it's Barry Bonds. But outside of that, yeah, you've you've got a lot of pitchers who are pitching to their strengths. Now, do the catchers know? <laughs>
1: I can't think of any way they wouldn't know, but well, is that does <laughs> this really makes sense. So. <laughs> the catchers also have face blindness? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think it would, it, I guess it's basically asking like how effective are scouting reports, right? Yeah. That's kind of the upshot of the question here is if you just don't know a hitter's weaknesses. And in the past... You probably had less of a sense of hitters' weaknesses than you do today. There was less data. It was more anecdotal or kind of based on observation. So I think that for the most part, you talk to pitchers and they'll tell you that they pitch to their strengths and they pitch the pitch that's good for them more so than the pitch that is bad for the batter. But there's some of that, certainly. You know that a guy is bad against breaking balls or you pound him inside or whatever. I'm, I'm sure there's some value to that. So if you took away advanced scouting and scouting reports from a team for a full season, that may be a question we've answered before, but I would think that would hurt. I don't know exactly how much it would hurt.
0: I think in a way it would actually serve to undo the third time through the order penalty because I think you'd have pitchers and I guess also catchers learning more about the hitters each time they go through because pitchers Mm. can read swings. They can read where batters are. They can read what they're looking for and you can read like if someone has a big uppercut swing then you can assume well now or maybe next time he's up I'm going to attack up in the zone so I think that uh, you, you would have run scoring would be elevated early in the game and then pitchers would learn a little more the next time and then if if they got a third trip through the order, then they would uh, they would have the most knowledge they're going to have. Now, I don't know if any of this carries over game to game if you face the same opponent again. And then, you know, if you're the other team, you could always pinch hit. And I guess the pitcher wouldn't know who's batting. <laughs> this gets really weird and complicated, but I'm going to stick with my, my theory here. The, uh, the times through the order penalty would be diminished if not erased.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. And I'll say it costs you, I don't know, a handful of games a season or something. I, I believe there's value in scouting and opponents' weaknesses. <laughs> if <laughs> there's think. not, my goodness, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot so of much waste of wasted money. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then last one from Mark. All the talk about different eras a couple episodes ago got me thinking. Is there an ideal era? I believe Mark is also a Patreon supporter. By the way, if 1968 was the year of the pitcher, if we are now in a high home run, three true outcome era, if the 90s and 2000s were a steroid ridden era or at least another high offense era, then when were the best years? I suppose there's a deeper philosophical discussion here about what baseball should look like, but I'd be curious to see what a statistical breakdown of baseball's history would show as the middle ground. I suppose my question is, if we were to make baseball great again, when was baseball the greatest before for what it's worth, I like it fine right now.
0: Yeah, I think it's right now. Really? I know I'm biased, but I think it's right now.
1: Huh. Well, it, I mean, it's definitely better right now for reasons having to do with off the field. I mean, it it's better in that it's better to consume now. It's easier to follow. The writing is better. The stats are better. So all of that is better. And I wouldn't give up any of that. And it's better in the sense that the players are better. So you're probably seeing the highest caliber of baseball ever. Stylistically, I don't know if it's the best. I I don't know that it makes a meaningful difference, really, to how much people enjoy baseball, whether it's high offense or low offense or three true outcomes or not three true outcomes. I don't know. I don't know that it really it affects our enjoyment all that much. You hear a lot from people that the 80s were the ideal baseball era. And that could just be because a lot of the people who are kind of prominent baseball commentators today grew up with 80s baseball. And so they think it's the best. But there is an argument to be made there in that it was kind of a well-rounded game. There was a lot of speed, lots of steals. That's exciting. It was, you know, not a high home run era, but not like a year of the pitcher type era either. It was kind of like in the middle in a lot of ways, but also there were steals and exciting strategy in a sense. So I'm somewhat sympathetic to that argument, but I just don't know that it matters all that much.
0: Yeah, right now.
1: Yeah. Do you think right now just, I mean, is it because you don't think it matters that much, or do you think there are things about the way baseball is played today that are actually more entertaining?
0: Mostly, I'm convinced by the fact that the players are better than ever. Now, uh mm-hmm. maybe I, you could convince me because if I don't know much about historical injury rates. If players were just mm-hmm. more able to stay on the field, I there's nothing I dislike in sports more than when players get hurt because I want teams yeah. to be able to use their, their talent. I want players to be able to stay mm-hmm. on the field. It's one of the major reasons it's driven way, me away from football over the years. Everyone just gets mm-hmm. injured at some point or worse. Yeah. So if there were fewer players getting hurt or something, then... Maybe it would have been better before, but I don't know. I I think that now you have players who care the most about what they do, players Mm -hmm. least likely to take a game or a playoff. They're just these like specifically purebred baseball-playing machines, which can lead to people being super intense and unpleasant like (laughs) Hunter Strickland, but also just leads to players being really, really great all Mm -hmm. of the time. So... I'm unconvinced that I would prefer another style of baseball. I would love it if baseball moved faster. I think a lot of us would. I do miss, I guess, sort of the pace I grew up with. But outside of that, if I had to choose between an era I know or an era in the past that might have been better, I'm going to take the era with the more talented players. That's right now.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I'd go 80s if not now, but I'm also fine with now. All right. So we will end there. Wanted to share this fun fact, by the way. Speaking of our discussion about the Orioles and their pitiful pace this year, listener Asher in the Facebook group posted, 2018 Mike Trout to date, 6.5 baseball reference war. The entire Orioles to date, 3.2 baseball reference war. So Mike Trout, by himself, has basically been twice as valuable as the entire Orioles roster. There's some food for thought. You can support the podcast on Patreon, and we would love it if you would, by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already done so Andrew Thompson, Kevin Reed, Paul Harmon. Randall Woodford and Mike Carlucci. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes or many other services. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. We will be back with one more episode this week. So we will talk to you all soon.
0: Just settle down Sins of love. Th-